Hello and welcome to Adult Music the Podcast with music for the mature mind. This is episode 109 and I'm your co-host covering the jazz side of things. Russ over here and over there is... Yeah, over here with the classical stuff is Mike. Ready to go. How you doing, Mike? Yeah, I'm doing okay. A little yeah. uh, party yesterday, just kind of recovering okay. from that. Out in the uh, cherry blossoms, which are out now in Japan. And it was a really beautiful day yesterday too, so... Just went out with a lot of friends and had a had a good time. I'll tell you one thing about Japan: good times here always involve alcohol. It's like it's like required or something. <laughs> you know, there was that, and I just kind of today I'm just kind of recovering. Well, you it's know, like, the Japanese um, a little bit more formal than us Westerners, and uh, yeah, it takes a little bit of lubrication, lubrication. to uh, loosen <laughs> things up and get people to uh, ease up and relax a little bit more than other people. So. Right. Yeah, that does happen, especially when the cherry blossoms come out and people gather. It's another excuse yeah. to get lubed up. <laughs> yeah, the they trees, get lubed so. up in the middle of the day and it just goes from there. Boy, yeah. I, I guess it's a good thing that the cherry blossoms aren't around all year long. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Can't imagine what would happen then. Okay. Anyway, spring is definitely here, here. I know it's not uh, so spring-like back in uh, New York, uh, where we hail from, uh, hearing reports there. But hopefully- What's happening there? I didn't- Well, it's still snow. It's you know, still snow in upstate New York. Snow? This week. In yeah, April? Snow. Yep. Damn. Snow. Yeah. <laughs> Glad I live be, here. Anyway. It's going to be a muddy spring, but over here things are getting green, and also there's lots of good music releases coming out, and we're going to share some of those yeah. spring releases- Tonight, uh, before we yeah. get into uh, rolling things, though, I think we uh, have a departure in the music world that you want to share this week, too. Oh, we're going to do that now? Okay, yeah, we do We do have a death this week. Someone really major, so roll that uh, theme. Let me get up to the piano. Our departed um, countertenor this week is James Bowman. Okay, he was a very famous countertenor. He died at the age of 81 last week, and he's a key figure in that voice type, which sort of came back into style with uh, period instruments. People probably have heard about the castrati tenors who could sing um, at the um. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> they, could, they could sing with full vocal power, you know, in the the high like women's range. Mm. And uh, for reasons that I don't really want to go into now, I think you can probably guess <laughs> by the uh, by what the, the name they were called by. But um, approximating that were the countertenors. They kind of came back and they sang in this falsetto voice. It's not a full power voice, but um, it was kind of like a, a light voice and people would do it. But then James Bowman came along and really changed the game. Um, he just obliterated notions of the countertenor as a limited voice. He was able, he had a wide range and he was able to like color his voice or sort of um, be flexible with it in ways that mm. made uh, his singing like more expressive really than anyone at the time when he first appeared on the scene. And he's had a huge influence because like now all countertenors have developed those skills in their own way. So uh, that's a big loss. He, he did live a good life at dying at 81. And I remember hearing him on a lot of uh, Christopher Hogwood uh, conducted albums, a, another uh, conductor who... Um, I, I remember from my 20s and 30s, who is now no longer with us. So rest in peace, James Bowman. All right. Well, we are the podcast that brings you new releases in classical and jazz music. Before we get into the music for this week's episode, I want to remind everyone that in the episode description, 
You can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the recordings that we're going to talk about. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You can get all the music in one place on Deezer. That's our favorite CD-quality streaming platform. You can also follow us there. They have podcasts, too. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. You can get the playlists and the podcast all in one place. If you can't see the full description or recording list on your app or the links are not active, you can always come over to our host site where everything's tidy and easy to follow. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. If you enjoy the podcast, just take a moment to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a friend too. Have any music loving friends, musician friends, uh, word of mouth is one of the best ways we can get new listeners. And if you just take a moment as well to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the recommendations for music and music commentary. That also helps us grow our audience. In addition, come over to our Facebook page. Look us up, Adult Music Podcast, there. And you can get extra info during the week. You can see new releases. I put up a bunch of jazz stuff every week. And Mike puts up, uh, he's got a link up there about a recording I think we're going to hear next week as well. That was a while back. I got yeah, I got I got more stuff coming up that I didn't put up. I got to do that. Yeah, the high baroque trumpet will do that next week, finally. Check us out over there. And you can also leave a message or comment there. You can see the interaction and feedback we get from the musicians with a lot of recordings we discuss. And we've got a, most of our followers are all musicians there, too, that we've talked about. So our hope is to grow a little community through there, and you can become part of that. In addition, if you want to get in touch with us, any comments, questions, any musicians out there, you want to let us know about your own recordings, or really, we'd like to hear from you if you listen to us wherever you are. We've got people around the world, India, Bangladesh, Kenya. We've got downloads from all over the place. We wonder, who are you guys listening to us? Or ladies, mm. uh, drop us a line. We'd love to know who you are and uh, if, you know why you like the podcast and what you think of any of the recordings we discuss. So send us an email. The address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Additionally, yeah. well, we're sharing our audience with some other podcasts, music-related podcasts, and hopefully some of the uh, listening base has some common points. So we've got Tom Gowker's Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz blues and R&B interview podcast. It features a lot of well-known musicians and some interesting themes every week. Also, famous interviews in neon jazz. I'm going to bring this one up later because it relates to one of the artists I'm going to talk about. That's from Joe Domino. Oh, wow. He interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And then for jazz fans, we've got the same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard, where they look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week. They play little parts of each version, and they discuss the history of the original and the different versions. So you can find links to all of those at the end of the description. And at the end of the episode, get a little promo audio clip from each one. And so be sure to check those out if you need some more music-related podcasts throughout your week. Right, and that's a podcast that I've been listening to that last yeah. week too. You know, same difference. So I'm subscribed to that, and I've really been enjoying it a lot. Cool. So I want to also say, people, uh, write to us and let us know what you want to know more about. You know, we want to, we want to serve the audience. So uh, if, if you have a way that we can improve the podcast or something like that, also let us know. We're very interested in your feedback. It seems like we have two separate themes this week, and my theme has to do with um, today being Palm Sunday. We're about to um, launch into Holy Week, and Easter is next week. So I picked three, shall we say, religious or even spiritual uh, recordings mm -hmm. that, uh, that I thought it'd be a good time to talk about them. I did this last year too. 
Now, usually I'm kind of like wanting to do maybe a St. Matthew Passion, but that one wasn't released this year. And while I love this work, it's it's more than three hours long, and I really don't want to hear it in that kind of detail every year. I do listen to it every year, though. If anyone wants to hear one, I will recommend last year's Raphael Pichon recording on Harmonia Mundi, so you can do a search for that. So if you need your St. Matthew Passion for this week. But this week, I've gone uh, in a different direction. And I want to say before I start this, all of my, three of my picks are stunningly beautiful recordings. They <laughs> they all come up sounding great. And they're beautiful performances as well. They're, they're all beautiful performances, but I'm going to have something to say about one of them that I'll get to when I get to that. Hmm. I'd urge you to hear all three of them, though. And the first one is a composer we heard about um, two weeks ago. Yeah, Remember the Tom ago and Will album? It's, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, Tom and Will, Tom Wilkes and um, William Byrd. That was um, sort of motets, major goals. That's a, they're mostly um, secular. There are a few spiritual things here. But now we're going here for William Byrd's, um, so shall we say, church music, right. music written for the mass. And this is, uh, the album is called The Golden Renaissance. Now, this seems to be a series that Decca is releasing. We talked about the first release in this series uh, by, of music by Josquin. Two years ago about. I don't really remember. I didn't check the episode, but it was in 2021. And this is the second release in that. And also very timely because the Josquin recording came out in the, I think, the 400th anniversary year of his death. Or was an anniversary year. I'm not sure it was the right. 400th. So this is the 400th anniversary year of William Byrd's death. He died in 1623, which makes him a contemporary of Shakespeare. So if you want to kind of get your timing there. This is by the same ensemble, Stile Antico, and it's on the Decca label. So this album explores the music of William Byrd's later years. And it's also, the notes say, private music, and sometimes even secret music composed for small groups of singers who shared his commitment to creating these beautiful sounds. Now, when they say secret music, what they mean is Catholics. He, Byrd was a Catholic in England, so they were being uh, prosecuted at certain times in England, and uh, these masses and songs needed to be hidden at the time. Although Bird himself was a really, um, he got a lot of respect, let's say, and he was he had a say in uh, the way things went. So he got to sort of protect a lot of people at his time in his time as much as he could. Anyway, this program features an unnamed four voice mass. Now, when we talk about a mass, there are four or five sections of the mass. Here we have, I think, four of them. Uh, the Kyrie, Gloria, Sanctus, and there's a Credo too, but I don't know if they do the Credo here. Oh, they do. Okay, Sanctus, Credo, Sanctus, and Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. Set to music. This is a traditional thing. Now, when you set a Mass in the Renaissance, this was the highest level composition you could possibly do. Once we got to the uh, classical Romantic era, that became an opera because it just used all the forces uh, available at the time. Before that, it was a Mass. So this was the uh, composer at his, always at his peak, you know, doing something mm. big for the public. Okay, so this four-voice mass that we hear is interwoven with a different type of mass setting. Bird, um, before he died, one of his last projects was a large collection of music. His two books of Gradualia, published in 1605 and 1607. And these were for masses on all the major holidays and festivals of the liturgical year. Now, you got to think about this. You have the Mass, which is every week. Now, if you write a Mass, that means your music is going to be heard every week or could be heard every week, unless they were doing Masses by different composers. 
But if you wrote, say, a piece for Christmas or a piece for Easter or a piece for uh, the Assumption or the Pentecost, you only got to hear that music one time a year. So mm. composers didn't want to do that much. But Bird um, put a whole collection of music out with music for every one of these days. And this particular uh, recording sort of um, features one of those. The holiday in question is the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, which is uh, August 15th, a national holiday in Italy and France, as I know from having been there. You have to imagine yourself on that day. If I had waited until 15th of August to uh, talk about this recording, it would have been old by, the, <laughs> by our standards here on this podcast, although it'll still be uh, worth hearing at that time since it's a great recording. So you might want to pick this up and just put an August 15th sticky note on it and uh, enjoy it on that day. All right, let's uh, look at the uh, track listing on this Bird's, William Bird, The Golden Renaissance. The first um, track is a uh, piece called uh, Retire My Soul, Consider Thine Estate. And the notes call this the most intense of Bird's English songs. It's in English. It's got beautiful, smooth entries and harmonies, as we're expecting now from Stila Antico and really from Bird's writing. This work proceeds in a slow, somber fashion and sets a resigned mood. A lot of um, Christian or Catholic, traditional Catholic Renaissance era music sounds resigned. Nothing like the joy we get, say, in the Baroque era hmm. from Protestant masses or from American gospel choirs. It's, it's really very much the opposite, <laughs> somber. The somber last line sums up uh, the text. They sing, singers sing, In pale death's reckoning tables, thy days will seem but dreams, thy hopes but fables. You see, no, I don't, I don't want to live anymore now. It's just all over. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the second track, let's get ourselves out of that. A more cheerful one, as the title would suggest, Gaudeamus Omnes in Domino. That is Latin for, let us rejoice in the Lord. It's a much brighter setting than track one. This is a good programming contrast. Um, and it starts in the high voices. The text encourages the assembled to celebrate the feast in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The glory be part is set off, glory be to the Father meaning, okay, is set off from the rest by having the words sung together in harmony rather than weaving counterpoint. So you, you'll notice it right away. And then the opening lines are repeated. All right, we get to the first part of the traditional mass, the Kyrie. Lord have mercy. This is written for clandestine Catholic services. Yeah, they had to go into hiding because of the whole Protestant uh, Reformation happening in England. And printed in the early 1590s as a small pamphlet with no title page or other identifying materials. Bird never gave this mass a name, and no other English musician had tried to set the Latin mass to music for almost half a century at that point. That's hmm. 50 years. The practice among composers had been to quote popular tunes, use traditional plain song melodies, or recycle older works in writing a mass, but Bird does none of these things. We're getting a, a completely new work, very holy in its conception. So the voice heard here is immediate and always Bird's own. The Kyrie has a lovely opening in the middle voices, which are then complemented by high and low voices as they sing in counterpoint. And the text is easy to follow because the melismatic lines, melismatic lines, um, changing notes on a single vowel are kept short. So we can kind of hear the words change pretty easily. There's a glowing quality to the voices in recording and to the space the recording was made in. It's a really beautiful space. This is a great recording. Good, good one to uh, sample on your stereo if you're buying a new stereo. The composition is separated into three distinct sections for the three sentences that are sung. 
Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, as is traditional. Here it's kept short and to the point. Track four is the Gloria, which is also from the Mass for four voices. This is a longer prayer, glory to God in the highest, etc. It starts with the traditional plain song opening by a single voice. We usually start that, and then the chorus bursts in Mm. and makes us amazed, and that's what happens here. Um, The voices start weaving through the text. At Laudamus Day, we have the singers singing the words together. This ends with glorificamus te, so it's like the whole congregation has come together in praise. And then we go back to counterpoint. The piece is composed in sections, which is sort of necessary in such a long prayer. The lines are gotten through rather quickly. Oh, by the way, if you want to follow the sections, you'll, you'll hear it. But on the word Jesu Christe and on Domine Deus is where the second section ends. The lines are gotten through rather quickly, and melismatic lines are kept to a minimum, making the text followable. The tones of the ensemble and harmony make the sound more on the cheerful side. And of course, this is in Latin, as masses usually are at this period. We get away from the weekly mass with track five, Propter Veritatum, Assumpta Est Maria. And it sounds a little thinner. This ha- It's like it has fewer voices in it, but the mass has four voices, or they're attenuated somehow. The harmony sounds spare, texture is lighter. The expressive soprano voice is clearly heard, and I like her way with the words. The soprano voice drew me, by the way, throughout this recording. I like her inflection mm. and her tone, and um, she blends in very well. I'm not saying that she stands out that way, but there's something about her expressiveness that really drew me, even in these uh, really complex patterns. So listen to those high soprano voices. Things get more complex with the line starting, Audi filia evice. And lighten up again for the Assumpta Es Maria section. You're going to need a text to follow this to know what I'm talking about here. You can probably find it online. You can definitely find the uh, the Mass words online. Right. Track six is the Credo of the Mass, which is the longest section. And it starts with a plain chant, as is often the case. And then the alto voices start the contrapuntal lines moving. Again, the text is set to compact lines. And they're easy to follow due to their brevity. And the use of four voices. I really like the compact way Bird has of setting these lines in counterpoint. He gets through the sentence relatively quickly. I mean, we could be on a single vowel for five or ten <laughs> minutes if we wanted to be, depending on how resourceful the composer is. Uh, there's some word painting in this, which is a fun thing that the Renaissance-era composers did. We have the words sepultus est, which means uh, he was uh, buried, okay? And it, they're very quiet, as you would imagine. When somebody is buried, it's very quiet. And then when we have et resurrexit and was resurrected or rose from the dead, we have a winding, rising, crescendoing line. It's kind of interesting. And it's mm. like, uh, you know, and it sort of sounds like uh, it, it's not just a sudden burst of sound. It's sort of like it's just being sort of coming mm. into being from nothing. It's really an interesting effect. The longest text of the Mass is musically divided into digestible sections, too. Track 7, Assumpta Est Maria. Now, we already heard a piece sort of with that name earlier on track 5. This brief text starts with the women's voices singing the syllables together in harmony. Counterpoint enters the picture when the men's voices come in. And this is a brief uh, track at a minute and 31 seconds. But there's a lot of musical content in that time. The Alleluia at the end has a more sprightly rhythm unexpectedly emerging out of the setting. Track 7, I recommend that one as a sample. Track 8, Sanctus and Benedictus. This is from the Mass. And there's a lovely melisma on the A vowel of Sanctus. 
at the beginning, right away. It's traditionally said three times in the prayer, so we get to hear these gorgeous voices sing it three times in that style. First with a solo voice, then the second time with harmonies, and then the third time with even more harmonies, more and more voices. The words are scattered in the different voices, but this is not contrapuntal. What I mean is scattered is they all come in at different times with the uh, consonant or syllable sound, but they're not weaving contrapuntal harmony. The voices don't enter in a straight line with the harmony. Then we get to the Pleni Sunt Celi uh, section. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. The counterpoint becomes prolonged and lighter in texture in the Benedictus, with the ensemble showing a lot of variety in their vocal approach. Track nine, Optimum Partem Elegit. This is very striking. Like track one, it's a cheerful text, but sung here with reverence. So it's sort of uh, an odd um, juxtaposition of sort of reverent music to a joyful text. I like the characteristics of the very high soprano voice in this particular track too, track nine. It resonates beautifully in the space with the vowel sounds she produces. Track 10, Agnus Dei. This is from the mass in the last part of it. A tightly wound minute and a half of luxurious dissonance that has very few equals anywhere in Renaissance choral music. Yes, this is a unique sounding Mm. movement for this era. It marks the end of the mass and starts with high tenors and low altos, producing fantastic timbres, very smoothly and creamily blended and sung throughout its three iterations of the line Agnus Dei, Qui Tolis Piccata Mundi, that is, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Track 11. Turn our captivity, O Lord. This is Psalm 126, uh, if you want to follow along, but it's in Latin. Anyway, settings of a psalm like this one in English or Latin were uncontroversial in Bird's Day, unlike settings of the Mass. Uh, Works like these were not for clandestine masses. They were chamber music for the entertainment and delight of musicians. If you have the CD of this, um, the booklet is a little bit confused here. The text for this is listed as track 13, but it's in the correct order in the track listing. So if you're kind of following along in the booklet, you're going to get mixed up. This has a thick harmonic texture for the first line and a lighter, more rhythmically active rhythm for the more joyful second line. So there's word painting here. The same variety is heard in the weeping third line and the, this is from the booklet, jollity inspired. Jollity. I have (laughs) never used that word. No. Yeah. I did. You don't really hear that often. Very joyful, but I didn't use jollity. Yeah. Yeah. Jollity inspired. Although I've heard the only time I've ever heard that word uses in uh, the planets by Gustav Holst, oh. where he calls I think Jupiter the Jupiter, bringer yeah. of jollity, which I thought was an odd hmm. choice of words. It must have been more common back in the day, or maybe British people say it. Who knows? British people write to us, <laughs> teach us English. Track twelve. Praise our Lord, all ye Gentiles. Okay, so this is uh, in the song text, it's listed as track 11, but it's the correct track 12 on the track list. And of course, if you're streaming, you have no problem with any of this. Don't worry about it. This has bright vocals and harmonized syllables to make the injunction to praise the Lord powerful and desirable. Track 13, Laudate Dominum Omnes Gentes. All people praise the Lord. In this case, the Latin Omnes Gentes translates as all people, although they say all ye Gentiles in the... English title. It's a Latin piece, though. This is listed as track 12 in the texts, okay, So, but the track listing is correct, as is the streaming. So it directly follows Praise the Lord and sounds like a continuation of it. It's cheerful rhythmically, 
but the textures seem thicker. There are a lot of intertwining voices, and the booklet doesn't list the number of voices we're hearing on each track. Okay, I want to just say something about the uh, editing in these uh, booklets. Yeah, you'll get mistakes every once in a while, but we had that Caroline Shaw debacle a few weeks ago on that (laughs) Alpha release track, and now this. This seems to be getting more and more common. We need some editing on these booklets or on the... um, you know, in Carolyn Shaw's case, on the CD itself. By the way, the um, they they told me the Alpha label told me oh they'd send me a replacement CD, and well, I haven't received it yet. Maybe it's on the way, but I'm going to keep you informed. Anyway, track fourteen, last track, Tribue Domine. This is uh, the biggest piece on the album for six voices, composed by a younger bird for a joint publication with Thomas Tallis, his teacher, friend, mentor. In around 1571, it's an homage to an older genre, the uh, Vodic Antiphon, sung by pre-Reformation choirs after Compline, when the daily round of obligatory services was done, and the singers can enjoy some ornate music on their own terms. Can you imagine? You're singing in church, and then just to enjoy yourself, to unwind, you sing some more (laughs) on your own? I don't know. The words are taken from a heartfelt first-person prayer attributed to St. Augustine. Okay, so this is the longest track on the album at uh, 13 minutes and 46 seconds. It makes a fitting conclusion. The six voices make for a thick texture, and I'm especially impressed by the sound produced by the high voices. I really enjoyed those on this album throughout. The text is pretty long, consisting of three wordy verses. The second section, starting at the words te deprecor, which means I entreat you, begins at four minutes, one second, and is presented as a new musical paragraph after a pause. This kind of writing makes texts like this easier to follow. There's counterpoint, but most of this consists of harmonized syllables in a sometimes straight or sometimes scattered vertical line. I'm hearing some wonderfully harsh harmonies too. Harsh in a good way. Unexpected. See if you can pull the inner male voice harmony out at the 7 minute and 27 second mark. You probably will because it'll make you wince when you hear it. It's a passing harmony and I really loved it. The passing harmony sticks out for its harmonic harshness. The glorious section starts at the 8 minute and 10 second mark. Uh, This is the third and final musical paragraph of the piece. It's quieter than the previous section. It has a more reverent feel to it and leads to a reverent final amen. So anyway, this album is a much more serious affair than the Josquin release of 2021, which had a lot of his secular songs as well as some religious compositions. 2021 was, of course, our first year of podcasting. <laughs> I got to say, it seems more recent than that. I still remember listening to the <laughs> yeah. Josquin recording. Like that one, this is an absolutely transparent recording, allowing the listener to hear each voice clearly and to enjoy the room sound as well. While the ensemble remains at a more formal, creamy vocal timbre due to the formality of the material. They go for like a rougher sound in a lot of these secular songs. They still show the ability to render each section with a subtly different approach, despite this creaminess, be it via vowel sound, changing the harmonic texturing by adding or subtracting singers, or changing the tempo. It's an extremely versatile and subtle ensemble, a lot of creative ideas in getting these pieces across, and a beautiful recording of this music. I should say, I think you listened to this on the CD. On streaming, this is actually broken up into smaller tracks for each part. Oh, really? So the, no, I heard it on the CD. Yeah, the streaming actually has 25 tracks. Wow. So you find it that way. <laughs> the CD does not. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's mirrored. If you want to see the individual movements clearly with a little more information than probably the streaming has, you can go to the Presto Music site and look up this album. And sometimes yeah. that doesn't match the streaming and things are off. But this one was a perfect match. So yeah, the streaming actually has 25 tracks. I want to mention that's a good thing for music like this because um, we don't know when certain sections end and the change of track can help us understand that. So yeah. really great. And sometimes you can get a little bit more of the you know, sort of metadata that goes along with the recording. If you look at uh, either the recording label site or Presto is sometimes pretty good. Now, they're usually good. They, they do have some uh, flaws to there, but sometimes it's a puzzle to put together the different names and all the information. Anyway, I enjoyed this recording a lot too, especially, well, as you talked about in the final piece there, the intersecting lines, but all throughout the program, they create these really interesting harmonies, crossing tensions and uh, interesting sort of uh, releases. And they arrive in various ways at different types of cadences. This recording is full of all these really solid cadences and then some stranger right. ones as well. So if you like tension and release with weaving voices, you'll like that. Uh, because this one's all religious music, it has a very meditative and beautiful sound to it. The sonics of the recording are really great. And Stile Antico make the music really flow with great phrasing. It's not just the music, but the interpretation is great. And the balance of all the voices is really excellent as well. So I really love Renaissance vocals myself. And this recording is really beautiful. And just the way everything flows from the individual phrasing of pieces through the whole program, I find it really enjoyable. You know, one of the things I really love about um, the Renaissance music is like when you're listening to it, say... You're just sort of relaxing or maybe doing something else while you're listening to it. And then there'll just be this one harmony that yeah. goes by and it just makes you say, whoa, what was that? You, know, you stop yep. what you're doing for a moment. It's almost like uh, if it catches you in the right mood, I think you can uh, attain enlightenment. It's very possible. Never happened to me, though. We just have to listen a little more. That's all. Well, I don't know. You can't really force that. You just have to have that surprise harmony like, whoa, and there it is, you know. Be open all to of it. Your, all of your worldly, worldly troubles are done. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of Amen, let's go on to another um, sort of church-based work. This is uh, Sergei Rachmaninoff, his Vespers and All Night Vigil. The whole piece is called the All Night Vigil. The first section is the Vespers. And what an interesting history for this one. Yeah. I read the album notes that you sent me for this one with great interest. You fill in anything that I left out because I did kind of make some notes about this. This is performed by the choir of King's College London, conducted by Joseph Fort, and it's on the Delphian label. Now, I want to say something right away. I wish I could have a recording of this piece that sounds as good as this, sung by a Russian choir. Mm. Now, we've talked about like Russian, and well, not necessarily Russian, but Central European or East European recordings. They tend to go for that drier sound. And this one just positively glows. I really love yeah. the recording on this, but I really want that Russian character. And I want to say the Choir of King's College London gets a pretty decent feel, which I think is a Russian feel, which I think is written into the music, the separation of the voices, the, the way it comes right. out. There's a kind of odd harshness to it, despite the, the smooth singing that uh, sounds Russian, but they don't really inflect. It, it's all sung in Russian, of course. 
and the inflection is good, but you can just tell, you know, there's there's something extra when yeah, Russians sing Russian sure. music, which is really the case almost with any choir singing music from its own country. This is, I think, a bit foreign, but for them, but they the uh, ensemble does this really, really well. Uh, anyway, I'll talk about that a little bit more. Okay, so the titles on this um, CD or this album are given uh, in Russian, um, both Cyrillic script and Roman script, and English as well. And I'm going to read the English track titles only because <laughs> I really don't know how to pronounce Russian. And I also noticed that on our map of listeners, where people listen to us, no one in Russia listens to us, and there's one person in the ukraine that listens to us <laughs> so we haven't had russian downloads yep. for a while um when we started out we yeah. would get a few but not in recent okay. months so there's that one person in ukraine that seems to keep listening to us though welcome to adult music yes. <laughs> i want to say to him anyway premiered in uh, 1915 the all-night vigil provided a stirring expression of a unified russian identity amid the existential threat of military conflict yes the bolshevik revolution would come in 1917 and turn russia from a czarist um, state to a communist state anyway after the that bolshevik revolution the all-night vigil came to occupy a questionable status as you can imagine in the soviet union its artistic merit was now emphasized through minimizing its sacred import and instead stressing rachmaninoff's unusual mastery of ancient russian folk song as the Soviet newspaper Izvestia noted in 1943, forgive my pronunciation. In contrast, for Russian emigres cut off from their homeland, uh, the all-night vigil served as a space of religious and cultural memory. It was an oral or sound remnant of a lost world. I fear that all classical music may fall into that category in the coming <laughs> years, so here I am preserving it. I hope you're listening, listeners, uh, to this music as we talk about it. We have to preserve it. Right, so I feel like we're going to be in that Fahrenheit 451 situation where everybody has to memorize the books so that they can survive the uh, authoritarian governments that are uh, they're ruling them. Anyway, so for listeners today, the beauty of Rachmaninoff's creation invites one to ponder anew the complex meld of spiritual, artistic, and national inspiration achieved in a moment of historical crisis. Now, incidentally, we just talked about William Byrd's, um, the, the, his, the anniversary of his death. This year is also the 150th anniversary, I believe, of Rachmaninoff's birth. Okay. So mm. that's sort of being celebrated by a lot of um, orchestras as well. The texts in the booklet are given in Roman characters, and also in there's no Cyrillic in the booklet texts, which will disappoint some uh, if you happen to be Russian and you want to listen to this. Uh, but it's a relief uh, for me. <laughs> this music, I don't know the Cyrillic <laughs> alphabet. The music isn't contrapuntal. It's really an early 20th century work. So even the Russian language here is easy to follow along with the text in hand. And you got your English translation as well. All right, so here we go. Track one. Oh, come, let us worship. This is, uh, was newly composed music at the time, but imitates the world of Russian Zamini chant. By the way, do you want to say anything about the history that I didn't say? Or Well, it was interesting that Rachmaninoff's background, he grew up listening to church music, and I think it mentioned that he was particularly fascinated by bell sounds, which you often hear in yes. his, his orchestral works. And so he said that he memorized the things he heard in church music and would go right. home and work from his memory, you know, on the piano to use those. But he was interested in the music, but not necessarily in the religious 
concepts and you know the sort of uh, liturgical standards uh, for the music, which was something he had to come back later to learn to get his music kind of accepted uh, as religious music. So there's sort of that catching up religiously for him. And then also the notes sort of outline the national characteristic of why the music was important, you know, to have this real Russian character, which incorporated uh, these chants and other type of things in there. So it's sort of music that has a religious and then also a kind of ethnic and national kind of significance uh, when it came together on the stage at that time. So it's a multidimensional kind of uh, composition. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I've uh, talked about this with, you know, former Soviet satellite countries, Ukrainian people, and they all love this um, this work, really. And mm. it, all the former Soviet countries, too. It's just sort of, uh, it, it sort of brings them together in a way, you know. So good for music, always bringing people together. Hmm. We should probably start playing this right about now. <laughs> anyway, this first um, track, Oh, Come Let Us Worship, it's uh, newly composed by Rachmaninoff, but imitates the world of Russian Zamani chant. Now, I'm really not familiar with these uh, different chants from uh, Russian folk music. I'm sure this would really electrify, you know, Russian or, you know, Russian satellite country um, listeners. Uh, but anyway, the brief opening has that wonderful Russian choral sound right away, clearly in the composition, because this is an English choir, so they're <laughs> just reproducing <laughs> it here. They don't sound English. I mean, they're really going for this Russian sound, and that's really a high compliment. It's a spacious recording with appropriate large room ambience, and the fort days register clearly and beautifully. Yes, if you've ever heard like Russian choral singing, they sing out like in this really you know, a strong way. It's it's really kind of full-toned and reaches the, the ceilings of the dome of the church uh, effortlessly. It's really strong sounding, and I really like it. It's stirring. Anyway, track two, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, is a Greek chant, and we're hearing the alto voice of Kotlin Goring here. The solo voice sings the song of praise, while choral voices um, depict the heavenly realm. Uh, Rachmaninoff will use this approach throughout the work. There's also wordless humming, which is unusual in Russian liturgical music. So the low voices pin the harmony for the alto voice, which has an interesting color to it, and a reverent, but not joyful, tone. So it's more reverent. The underpinning choir is gorgeously resonant on the recording. This is what I wanted to say earlier. They sound like high boys' voices, but the pitch-perfect intonation would indicate these are adult women, because the boys will go yeah. off pitch a little bit right now these are in fact women okay singing these um tracks but it sounds like they've kind of they've gone for this almost like boys voices here this goes back and forth from the alto to the high choral voices while the low men's voices sing continuously i don't know that boys choirs are big in in russia but they certainly are in england they've been a part of that culture of centuries the third uh, track blessed is the man is solemn continues in the same vein as the previous track but features just the chorus in a hushed tone and they get the character of the work beautifully here they sound solemn and communicate the russian character well dynamics are wide between soft and loud and register beautifully okay so what i'm saying here they communicate the russian character well i do wish i had a pair of uh russian ears or yes somebody who knows russian music well or could speak russian well uh, listening with me to let me know how accurate the uh, the accents are. Mm. I could tell they're a little off, but I'm wondering how much. I can't really 
tell, because I've heard Russian choirs sing before. Okay, the fourth track, Oh Gladsome Night, is a Kievan chant. And this is um, tenor Chris O'Leary is the, uh, the soloist here. This track is based on Russian folk style and highlights the higher voices. It's a continuous chant that just keeps moving. And at the words poem Otsa, we praise the father, we hear the tenor soloist. That's after the one minute mark. I love the changing choral textures in this piece. And the thickness and color of the choral voices changing with virtually every line is also fantastic. Track five, Now Lettest Thou, is a Kievan chant. Again, Chris O'Leary, the tenor. This is a peaceful lilting, has a lilting mood to it, contrasting with the previous track. This was said to be, by the way, Rachmaninoff's favorite movement, and he wanted it performed at his funeral, Hmm. which I guess happened. I didn't really follow up on that. Anyway, the choir comes in very quietly with the tenor singing the text out in a full ringing tone. I always find singing in Russian music to be muscular, and Chris O'Leary delivers that quality. The descending bass line at the end doesn't quite come across with the darkness that Russian basses can muster, but you can sense it a bit. Here they're a little too quiet, and this is one of my favorite sounds in the world, the, the Russian bass. They, they have a really <laughs> unique sound in the world. You know what I'm talking about, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, very really magical. Yeah, deep, chocolatey. They call them the black vase because it's like a mm. black-sounding voice. Track six, O Theotokos Virgin. Or I don't know how they would say that here. But it's the end of the Vespers section. Track six is the end of the Vespers section of this piece. It's, in quotation marks, a conscious counterfeit of chant. I like the solemnness of the approach here. There's a fantastic full-on fortissimo at a minute and 40 seconds, but it's momentary. We go back to the solemn tone to end the verse, and there's a lovely hushed ending. Track seven, we're now in the all-night vigil part, lesser doxology before the six psalms. Now, a doxology is a liturgical formula of praise to God. So it's something that's said every week. Anyway, the second half begins here. Rachmaninoff musically presents the beginning of Matins, which is very early in the morning for Christian monks. This uses a Zameni chant and a vocal imitation of bells. So here we go with the uh, bell right. sounds. We're going to be hearing them from now on, really. I guess the bells of Matins in the, uh, the monastery, the cloister. It's the beginning of a bookend whose closing is track 12. So track 7 to track 12 are almost two bookends with the tracks 8 through 11 sandwiched in between. It starts solemnly, and there's a stirring crescendo at the minute mark with results in a sudden quieting. The rest is solemn. Track 8, Praise Ye the Name of the Lord, is a Zamini chant. This is the point of the service when the royal doors of the iconostasis are opened and the clergy process to the center of the church. Now, an iconostasis is a wall of icons and religious paintings that separate the nave from the sanctuary in an Eastern Orthodox church. And you can see pictures of them online if you want to imagine that happening. The composition has an attention-grabbing circular quality to it with clear modal harmony as well. It's pretty brief, and the hallelujahs act as signposts that help the listener get a sense of where he is in the composition. And I liked this particular movement a lot. Track 9, Blessed Art Thou, O Lord, is a Znamini chant. Chris O'Leary is the tenor again here. A section of this uh, piece, or this movement, reappears years later in the finale of Rachmaninoff's 1940 Symphonic Dances, Opus 45. This has a clear chant quality to it. It sounds traditional in structure. 
I love the sudden fortes in this and in other mm. movements. They're awe-inspiring. Again, the timing and vocals capture the Russian feel well. It's approximated, especially in the solo tenor, but catches a sense of the flavor. This particular section is heavy in text. There's a lot of it. Track 10, Having Beheld the Resurrection of Christ, is an austere movement. It's another conscious counterfeit of a chant. It evokes the strict style of singing showcased in concerts given by old believer choirs. Now, what that is, in Russian Orthodox church history, these choirs sing composed music and harmonized arrangements that are often simplified of melodies from the 17th century. So, mm. sort of a tradition within the church there. So, full-on men's voices open with quieter women's voices responding. The piece goes on in this manner. There's sort of like a call and response quality to it. Track 11, My Soul Doth Magnify the Lord. This is the Magnificat prayer. A newly composed chant-like melody is heard in the basses with an angelic refrain in the upper voices. The basses are in the Russian style at the beginning, and the sense of the Russian bass style is there, but the deep quality of the Russian bass voice eh, isn't quite there. Still, you can discern the quality mm. out of this. It's impressive. I'm not just getting the frisson that I often hear when Russians sing this. You know, I really feel like I'm in a really special <laughs> musical place when I hear that sound. The voices aren't quite deep or heavy enough really here. Um, by this point, I'm getting the sense that we'd be getting a lot more color and nuance of tone in this work if a Russian choir were singing it. But I want to talk about this on its own terms, and it really is an excellent performance. Are there are lovely contrasts between sections of the choir in this section. Rachmaninoff is very resourceful in his choral writing. He has a lot of ideas. By the way, a lot of the recordings of this piece are either by English or American choirs. Go figure. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, track 12, The Great Doxology, Znamini Chant. Uh, it's the same Znamini Chant as track 7 here, again with a vocal imitation of bells. And this is the, the end of that section. This is the other bookend that closes this sort of section of the, uh, the All Night Vigil. It's the glorious section of the Mass. The chant quality is heard in the lower women's voices as the higher voices provide angelic harmony. I like the continuous quality of the chant. I love the bell imitations made by the women at around the 2 minute and 40 second mark and onward. The texture changes to something more straightforward shortly afterwards at around the 4th minute, but listen to those staccato syllables imitating bells that reappear throughout the section. Track 13, Troparion. Today is Salvation Come, another Znamini chant. A Troparion, by the way, in Byzantine music and in the religious music of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, is a short hymn of one stanza or organized in more complex forms as a series of stanzas. So this um, movement provides a quiet meditative space after the intensity of track 12, though it's not particularly quiet. Uh, the vowels are long held and there isn't much activity in the harmony, so it's sort of calm that way. Track 14 is another troparion, having risen from the tomb, as Namini chant. This also provides a quiet meditative space this is really an Easter piece in a way, but of course, this, this whole mess is for um, August 15th. It really continues harmonically in an approach from the previous troparion, and there's an extremely long final chord. Track 15, To Thee, the Champion Leader, a Greek chant, is a rousing finale, perhaps more reminiscent of the concert hall than a religious service. It has a dancing rhythm to it, maintained throughout by the choir, and it's very brief at a minute and 33 seconds. All right, so we have here a beautiful recording 
Uh, the choir captures the Russian feel and timbre of the work well enough, though at times I detect the fireside warmth so characteristic of an English choir. I, I get the impression that a Russian listener won't really be satisfied by this, but I thought it was fine. I personally would have loved to have heard those Russian basses in this work. Although nothing's really going to replace a top-ranked Russian choir in this work, this is a really impressive singing and captures the spirit of the work well. I found it warming to the soul, and I'd recommend it probably to non-Russians only, though. <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of Rachmaninoff's music, but normally that's centered around his piano and orchestral works. And I, I may have heard these works once before. I'm not very familiar with his religious or vocal works, uh, but I was really enthused by this performance and the music itself. As you said, it's not contrapuntal, but there are many layers of sounds. It sort of thickens and creates a really unique blend of tones. And the voices are nice. As you say, they don't come off carrying that kind of Russian atmosphere to them, but the tones and the sound quality are really outstanding. And as far as the music itself, there's a really interesting mix of contemplative and serene slow passages. And then there's some really joyous outbursts and movements that have a lot of movement in them and kind of with this triumphant ending. So the sort of arc of all the pieces takes you on a little journey. And I enjoyed it a lot. Like I say, it would be interesting to know what Russians would uh, think of this performance. But taken on its own merits, I think it was enjoyable and moving. All right. And now my final recording for this week is a, a piece that I love a lot by a composer that I love a lot. So I was really looking forward mm. to this. And I really should have done it much sooner. But we finally got around to it now. This is the recording of Federico Mompo's Musica Cayada. And it's performed by Stephen Huff who I featured on our first ever podcast. And this is on the Hyperion label. Stephen Huff is really my favorite pianist, or maybe it's Stephen Osborne. I tend to go back and forth between the two, depending on what they're playing. Anyway, for the beginning of this, what is the Musica Cayeta? First, let me tell you, Federico Mompo wrote mostly piano miniatures, and they just have these beautiful harmonies in them, really unique and uh, surprising. You can think of this as in the French style. He, he himself was Spanish. But the French style of Debussy and Ravel, they sound like very big influences on his harmony. For this piece, Musica Cayeta, I'm going to read uh, Philip Clark's insightful booklet note in the Hyperion um, booklet. Oh, by the way, yeah, this is one of those Hyperion releases where you can't hear it on streaming. <laughs> Although maybe soon, we don't know because we know... Um, Warner Classics bought that. It was Warner Classics, right? I don't remember. Was it but a Universal? big company bought them. Was it Universal? Okay, I think it sorry. Was Universal, yeah. Couldn't have been Warner Classics. Universal Music Group. Good for you, man, for the memory. I'm <laughs> really on my way out here. Yeah, Universal Music Group bought it, so we're probably going to start hearing it on uh, streaming. One would hope, because you're going to want to hear this one. So anyway, here's what Phil Clark has to say about this um, piece. Now, Stephen Huff uh, once wrote that, oh, by the way, you can read Steve, Philip Clark's entire booklet note on the Hyperion website. They publish the booklet notes there, which is fantastic, very useful. Stephen Huff once wrote that Mompo composed sounds that represent the music of evaporation. Interesting hmm. kind of description. And Musica Cayeta is probably the most evaporating set of works <laughs> that Mompo composed. They're very amorphous. Now, let me just interrupt here. 
I'm going to have something to say about that because they're not as amorphous as I've always thought they were, at least not in this recording. All right, the title comes from the book um, Musica Caira. It comes from Cantico Espiritual by the Spanish mystic and Carmelite friar St. John of the Cross, who lived from 1542 to 1591. This text attempts to express the searching of the soul as it achieves union with God, and one stanza pivots around a philosophical contradiction between the imagery of Musica Caida and Soledad Sonora, which is silent music, which is Musica Caida, and sounding solitude, Soledad hmm. Sonora. Yeah, Musica Caida is a meditation in sound, music speaking at the point where words fail to convey meaning. That's extremely important hmm. to keep in mind when you listen to this music. Where is that space when we have meaningless words, but then when there are things that happen that words can't express, and there's like a dropping off. I often think of that point as where, say on the piano, you have an 88 keys, and you're, you get up to the 80th key, and then after that, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> but there are still more sounds that can be heard. You know what I mean? That's sort of that sort of feeling. All of these works are miniatures. You can think of each piece as a carefully cut, polished gem, which is rotated slowly against the light, a process of discovery that doesn't develop Mompo's material, but gradually reveals the essence of its innards. Ah, beautifully said. It's like showing you something. It's it's sort of, um, you can almost think of these works as, in Christianity, talk about like a vision or something being revealed. And we're getting this as revealed music, let's say. It's not something that's going to develop or you're going to like learn the uh, elements of it through the, uh, the changing of the material. Intricate, subtle shadings emerge from the shadows before the piece simply stops. The pieces aren't linked by any musical motifs or other connecting devices. Well, yeah, that's true, but they do have form, and I want to talk about that. Instead, they can be thought of individual moments, each one to be appreciated for its uniqueness. Mampo rubs out all structure or connections. Not true. There is structure in these pieces. Maybe connections. Okay? So the disembodied sounds of the music float toward the ether. Uh, This is probably what Huff meant by evaporation. This is music that does not concern itself with the musical event, uh, such as a cadence or climax. Uh, That's true. Or rhythmic momentum or harmonic arrival. It doesn't act upon you. Instead, it makes listeners contemplate their own relationship with the sounds. Contemplate how sounds impinge on their own solitude. Now, I want to say, as far as structure goes, okay, there's probably not structure in the sense of harmony, harmony building up a sort of structure that's going to resolve at the end. So maybe I have to apologize to Mr. Clark because I'm misunderstanding what he's saying. But these pieces do often have form, and it's usually ternary. There's usually an opening section, then a middle, and then Mm -hmm. the opening will repeat at the end. So they are followable in that way, even though there's no real uh, development of the lines. They tend to repeat or just be there and be beautiful and then vanish or evaporate. I wrote some long notes about a few of these movements, but uh, there are a lot of tracks on this album. There are 28. So let's go through some of them. Divided into four notebooks. First, we have the first notebook, and we may as well do the first track here. Uh, This notebook was written in 1959. First uh, piece in there is called Angelico, or is labeled Angelico. And we hear what we're going to hear really throughout this entire album. Beautiful light chords with melodic figures connecting and circling around them. And Huff's touch really is ideal for this music. He made an earlier recording of Mumpo's music about, 
Man, it must be like 30 years ago now. It was in the 90s, I'm pretty 1998, sure. 1998, I think it's right at the end of the 90s, yeah. Okay, so a little less than 30, 25 years ago, let's say. Mm. And uh, this is the second one, and we knew he had a great touch for this music then. And he has a real sense of how to make these chords go straight to the heart with just the right touch. Uh, the chords are absolutely magical, as we would expect if we've heard Mom Poe's music before. And if you haven't, I suggest you do. You're really missing mm -hmm. out. It's reminiscent of the magic that Debussy and Ravel and even Eric Satie wrought. Satie because he was also a miniaturist. The piece sounds like it has a solid form and a resolving chord at the end. But resolving what, really? It's very satisfying and indicates the magic we're in for on this recording. The next one is louder and heavier in sound. Lont, which means slow. But still in that magical mumpo harmonic world. Now, the louder chords have a rougher edge to them after the first piece. The third piece, Placide, strikes a midway point in volume between the first two. And oh, that magical harmony. Oh, this is just like a treat for the ears throughout. This has form and feels satisfyingly complete by the end. When I say it has a form, I'm generally meaning it has an ABA form to it. The fourth piece, Aflito e Penoso, has a creeping quality to it with a bass note followed by a pagiatura type chord pattern. And it reminds me a bit of Debussy's Footprints in the Snow from his Preludes in its quietness and spaciousness. Uh, the fifth track uh, has a repeating bell-like note picked up by a lower note with interrupting appoggiatura type chords and then magical chords that take us out of that. It gets a bit loud and harsh in the middle but quickly dies down and the repeated notes sort of reminded me a bit of uh, Chopin's Raindrop Prelude. Mm. Track... Uh, Six has some characteristic outside-the-box Mampo harmony in the rising line in this piece. Like, he'll be going up, but he won't be playing a scale. He'll be playing something, and it'll just go way outside of the scale, and you really don't know where you are. It's almost like you've started climbing up a mountain, and then you started walking on the air, and now you're in the clouds. <laughs> it's, it has that quality. With deeply satisfying bass chords anchoring the harmony above. Mampo's lines wander outside the key. Hurts so good. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. All right. Track seven starts with a bass line that disappears. And after a pause, a chord pattern is heard creating a thematic shape. Another pause, a harsher bell peeling type uh, chords are heard. There's a great bass chord at a minute and 36 seconds. I really love the way Mampo pulls these sounds out of a hat like he's some kind of composing <laughs> magician. You know, hey, listen to the sound, you know. The chords of this piece are highly resonant, and the harmonics they leave are brilliantly caught by the recording and realized by Hoff, who has an excellent ear for this music. I want to say something about that. Music isn't just melodies, chords, things like that. There's a harmonic cloud that's created by this music, and you'll hear it on this recording. That's part of the music. You want to be listening to that sort of overtone cloud that's sort of... Um, you know, wafting above the actual mm. sounds that are being produced by the hammer hitting the uh, string on the piano. So expand your consciousness, please, and listen to those <laughs> as well and understand that that's music too. Track eight, very short, consists of a short line that has its harmonic colors change each time we hear it. That's exciting. And track nine uh, has a slow ticking quality to the rhythm. We hear these rippling short grace notes by the minute mark. And I get a raindrops in a pond feel from this one. And this piece just stops without any suggestion that it's going to end. 
All right, that's the first notebook. We go to the second notebook of 1962 with track 10. An emphatic opening, all melodic notes with no chords. Uh, chords appear later, though, and add to the richness. Track 11, chiming chords and rhythmic chain are heard at the beginning. Uh, the, the notes are almost linked like a chain, almost like an old Oriental-type feel. And I'm saying Oriental because I'm thinking about really old Chinese music, what we used to refer to as Oriental. I think that'll give people mm. a picture of what I mean. Uh, these changes to repeating patterns end in loud crashes on dissonant chords, and there's no re resolving chord at the end. I like it. Track 12, Lento. A dissonant deep harmony in the bass at the beginning. At a minute mark, there's some magical upward rippling scales, richest sonority, and harmonics. Track 13, Tranquilo. High end of the piano has a charming melodic line with bass notes conjuring up magical harmony. The middle section is loud and harsh. In complete contrast. Yeah, this isn't music you're going to fall asleep to because there are going to be some banging chords at times that are going to wake you up. But it all remains still and meditative overall. Mm -hmm. um, Huff gets the proper effect without ever losing his beauty of tone, even in crashing sections like this. The opening repeats, or something like it, at the end. Track 14, Severe, or Severo. Crashing chords at the beginning, again with appoggiaturas on almost every note. The middle is a quiet contrast. It's almost like there's an appoggiatura kind of going to a chord. I won't say resolving to a chord because I don't think that's happening here. Track 15, Lento has a gorgeous sound at the beginning with gradual downward moving set of chords in the left hand playing in the middle range. The upper line is in the high range of the piano. And track 16, Calm has a sparkling, circling arpeggio figure that creates a harmonic cloud with bass notes providing something akin to a melody. The circling figures dominate the piece. All right, the third notebook, also of 1962, only has five pieces in it. The first one, Lento, track 17, features bell sounds alternating between the upper and middle range with some excellent-sounding odd harmonies toward the bottom. It relies on the piano's sustain, and there's lots of subtlety of attack and huffs playing to really bring this piece alive. Track 18, Luminoso, is a brief arpeggiated spray followed by a sustained pause. Luminoso, it is. By the 42nd mark, we're hearing fragmentary melodies that end in pauses. The arpeggiated spray comes back at the end to bookend the middle fragmentary section. Track 19, Tranquilo. Uh, notice the harmonies in the rising chord pattern at the beginning. They're also bell-like in character and very pleasing to the ear. Huff has a real gift for drawing out the otter voices subtly and pleasingly. He does this in other music as well, and it's one of the things I love most about his playing. And he does it here in track 19. Track 20, there's a two-note pattern followed by a two-chord pattern driving this piece. Again, Stephen Huff uh, draws out the intoxicating inner voice colors from Mompo's always intriguing harmony. Track 21, Lento. Appoggiatura-like chords at the beginning, and that sort of note falling into chord pattern drives the piece. There's a bell-like repeated note chiming in the high end at moments throughout. The fourth notebook, and the final one, was uh, written in 1967, and features seven pieces. Uh, the first, Molto Lento e Tranquillo, has a long, very tranquil, sustained chords. There's a high series of notes creating a gentle, sparse melody. And there are the usual intoxicating chord colors. Huff's uh, variety of touch comes through in the gradations of quiet he's able to achieve in this piece. Track 23, Calm avec Clarté. 
a bolder attack, bell-like chords. And I'm getting a sense by this point, I should have gotten this earlier, of how church bell-like so many pieces in this work are. Hmm. It is, after all, inspired by the writings of St. John of the Cross. And bells really do have a way of bringing us into the uh, <laughs> the more invisible world, let's say, of uh, of the spirit. This ends it conclusively as a sustained chord fades. Track 23, I like that one a lot. Listen to that. Track 24, Moderato. This has uh, more of a theme, and it creeps into some odd key areas, but they're really color notes. Some fantastic harmony of the block chords are heard as the higher melodic notes start chiming. This all moves in the mid-range as the piece nears its end, and there are some satisfying bass chords with descending patterns from the top. Track 25 starts with a heavy arpeggiated color chord in the bass, followed by a light ending in the high end. The arpeggiated pattern moves in the middle register after the first minute. By the second minute, we hear some harsh harmonic clashes in the louder chords, but it all comes across as beautiful in Mompo's writing and in Hoff's playing. A quiet repeat of the opening figure ends the piece. Track 26 is Lento has chains of light, slow-moving bell-like sounds opening the piece. By the 45-second mark, we hear loud crashing chords like giant iron bells. Listen to the surprising beauty of the chords just after a minute and 20 seconds. Beautiful quiet tones at the end. I think of this as a bell piece, and I love the sound of bells and when the piano imitates them. So that's track 26. Track 27, Lento Molto, starts with a chord with clashing harmonic tones, always intriguing in Mampo. The piece unfolds into more melodic patterns from there. Now, I'm saying melodic, but these aren't really lines you can sing, so it's not melody in that sense. It's melody, it's melodic in the sense that it's horizontal in harmony, not vertical harmony, which would be chords. Huff uh, pulls out all of his touch technique for the gradations of softness heard in the middle of the work. I really love the light harmonic cloud created by the chain of bell sounds after the 2 minute 30 second mark in the bass. You want to listen to those chords. They're part of the music. And the final track, Lento, a pretty straightforward chorale-like chord pattern, starts this final movement. This really sounds like a church chorale in its chords at the beginning. After the first minute, we hear bell-like melodic chains of sound. Then tolling chords come back by the second minute. The opening chords return as a bookend for the middle material, and the piece ends with a quiet tolling bass note. And there it is. So this album is fantastic. It goes right to my best of the year list. By the way, if you're going to listen to our final episode of the year in December, <laughs> this will definitely be one of the <laughs> classical recordings on it. It's that good. I'm not going to leave it out. Even so, it's a bit tough to sit down and listen to straight through, um, I, although I guess you could listen to it while you're doing other things. There is contrast between the pieces, but I felt like it was uh, too much, really. It's a lot of contrast between very short pieces and i had to listen to it in two separate listens it might be best to listen to it in four notebook by notebook if you put it on in the background it might make you float away and you won't get any work done <laughs> <laughs> so what am i going to pick compare this to there were there haven't been that many great recordings of this or maybe none the benchmark work was always herbert hank's recording on ecm from I, ah, that was a long time ago that that came out and his recording really goes for atmosphere. And I've always thought of these these pieces as being sort of amorphous because of the Herbert Hank recording. But the Stephen Huff recording gives me more of a sense of the form, the ternary form that a lot of these pieces are using. 
And I was really happy to have that. So this is going to be my go-to recording over the Hank, I would say. Although I'm not going to give that one away because I'll probably want to listen to it occasionally. There's also one by uh, Jordi Maso on uh, Naxos. That's uh, pretty popular too. The sound is close on this album and crystal clear. The recording itself is unmissable if you like piano music. It goes right on the year of the best end list, as I said. Huff really gives this music a French feel that is present in the music. It's in the harmony, and Huff knows the right touches to get those chords to sound French and timbre-based. Huff actually puts forth a sense of structure in these pieces, and as a result, they come across as deeply satisfying performances. All of this music produces exquisite harmonic clouds, which the excellent recording makes highly audible. And I felt like Huff was really interested in bringing out the musicality of these works rather than just say the atmosphere. Whereas Hank is more interested in creating the atmosphere. So I still can't let go of that Hank recording as I said. This Huff recording will be the one I go to first though. I've never heard these pieces played as straightforwardly as they are here. And nevertheless, they still have exquisite attention to their sound world. I'm just mesmerized. I'm ready to just float off into the ether (laughs) with these pieces. Yeah, as you said, these pieces are all very short, and you said revealing. Uh, I wrote somewhere like unfolding. I guess it's the same idea. They're very simple and sparse, but they open up in interesting ways. It's not a task to listen to this album all the way through because it is really beautiful music. But there's so many changes that it might wear out (laughs) your attention span. Yeah, I was listening very closely as why with my notebook in my hand here, so... That's probably why. Yeah, so they're all very interesting little studies and sort of unfolding or dissection, dismantling of little ideas that are introduced uniquely in each one. Huff's playing is really subtle, and then he has that yeah. soft touch. It's really impressive because these are very subtle. He's one of the best out there. Yeah, pieces. Yeah. Now, that said, I enjoyed this a lot, and I want to listen to it again. But I actually think I still prefer his earlier Mompo recording just because I liked that material better. Well, it's more straightforward. Yeah. yeah. But also I've heard that a lot more. I listen to that a couple of times every year. So maybe I just need to I get used to this one a little more. But the way it is episodic, these small pieces, it is really quite interesting. And as a composer, it's amazing. He can do so much with these sparse elements of music and take them in really interesting directions with little ideas that open up really interesting possibilities. So I think anyone who plays piano or just is interested in sort of musical exploration will like this recording a lot. Now, what Russ was uh, describing too, we always have to keep in mind, we're talking about music like this. This music was specifically composed to uh, express the the qualities that words can't reach. So if we, yeah. if we sound really strange doing that, <laughs> I mean, I think it's good to use like spiritual terms. Like I used revealed because it's used in Christianity. But um, right. yeah, we can't, yeah, but you have to really listen to this and just kind of, it'll just maybe give you that understanding that uh, language doesn't really uh, express everything. I, I highly recommend that you buy this on a CD or you can buy a stream of it too. I highly recommend you do that at Hyperion's website. All right. And there you go. That's the classical music for tonight. All right, moving over to the jazz side of things, all the musicians we're going to hear, or at least the uh, main leaders we've heard before on the podcast, we're going to get some different combinations and directions of things. 
And we're going to start out with a really wonderful pianist, Bill Cunliffe, with the Bill yeah. Cunliffe Trio. And this is his release uh, from middle of March, March 15th, Border Widow's Lament. And the label this is listed under is Night is Alive Productions. Well, we've heard Cunliffe before on the podcast. That's all the way back to episode five. Wow. I thought the name seemed familiar. Yeah, with the yeah. John Patitucci Trio. and uh, But here he's got another bassist that we've uh, heard several times before. And if you don't know Bill Cunliffe, you really should. Uh, he's got an impressive resume, uh, graduating from Duke University. He got a master's degree from Eastman School of Music. And then for two and a half years, he taught music at Central State University in Ohio. Then he toured as a pianist and arranger of the Buddy Rich Big Band. And he went back to Ohio, and he was a house pianist at the Greenwich Tavern in Cincinnati. And he played with a lot of big names when he was there. Woody Shaw, Joe Henderson, Freddie Hubbard, Benny Golson, and more. 1989, he moved to Los Angeles. And shortly after that, in the same year, he won the Thelonious Monk Jazz Piano Competition. And the judges were Hal Galper, Ahmad Jamal, and Barry Harris. 2010, he got the Grammy Award for Best Instrumental Arrangement of Oscar Peterson's West Side Story Medley, and he got another nomination for a Grammy in 2006 for his jazz arrangement of Steely Dan's Do It Again. And he's been professor of music at California State University, Fullerton, and here he is with another bass player we've heard a couple times on the podcast, Martin Wind. And on drums on this recording, Tim Horner. We've got all original music by each of the trio members here, so this was uh, something new to get into my ear, and I'll do my best to, uh, to kind of describe the tunes. We're going to start out with a Cunliffe original, Whatever You Say. Well, now, this one's got a lot of fun rhythmic play <laughs> to begin the album. Uh, Lind and Cunliffe work synced unison syncopated melody lines uh, with more piano chords built around them over cymbals and fills from Horner. Uh, that works into some bluesy percussive chords and drum fills into a section where Vin drops out and Cunliffe gets some tricky polyrhythmic playing with his own bass line and speedy right hand lines. Uh, Vin joins back in and things shift into a nice chugging walking bass for a little while. Uh, back to some piano only and then Vin is back with a faster walk, and Cunliffe is soling away speedily. Uh, Vin's up for a melodic solo at a slower tempo then, and things speed up again for some trading fours between piano and drums, and then they work it back into the syncopated bass and piano melody from the beginning, into the percussive chords and some final trickles upward from Cunliffe. It's a fun one that really keeps you on your toes for all the rhythmic changes to start out. We're going to get a uh, Martin Vin composition, Slangalang. That's S-L-A-N-G-E-L-A-N-G. -E well, Horner starts mm. this one out on drums with some subtle light drumming. Bass and piano join in on a kind of monk-like melody. At least that's what came to my mind when I heard it. Uh, the bass movement's very cool with halting plucks and little descending lines with the piano left hand. It seems like an A-A-B-A -A -A form with a contrasting B section where the bass switches up to a walking under percussive piano chords. And there's a tricky little rhythmic skip in there as well. After we hear the A section again, there's a softer new section with syncopated bass and piano together and Horner filling in drums. Uh, Vind is back for walking under Cunliffe's solo, and he has really 
buttery smooth lines, chiming chords as well as things swing effortlessly. Uh, there's another chord section for Horner to work a more intense solo. They go through the melody sections again, and finally another section for the drums to fill through, uh, this time with a bit more ominous sounding chords from Cunliffe, finishing in a series of pressing and slowing chords and a final surprise. Uh, nice tight mm. drum work from Horner on this one. Track three is another Cunliffe original interiors. It's a ballad. It starts with a dreamy eight-measure intro of ringing piano from Cunliffe and a softly ringing bass and some bendy notes from Vind in there. The melody has a longing but lifting quality to it. Horner has clear and light cymbals dancing in under things. There's a 20-measure section before a pause and restart of the first theme, but this time it works into a different ending with bass and left-hand figures sounding a bit worrisome. Vin comes out of that with a bass solo relaxed and down low, making some nice melodies. Cunliffe adds pretty chords and fills, and he solos next, keeping Vin's relaxed approach in his own solo. He's got flowing phrases, showing his sense of touch and dynamics. They go through the first melody section and then into that worrying bass figure section, and then Cunliffe has dreamy piano figures that kind of rise and evaporate over Horner's cymbals and uh, soft bass pulse. And that word came up again, evaporate. Yeah, from the Mon Paul. I gotta say, this particular one, the theme kind of reminded me of a of like the 1970s somehow. It just kind of put me in mind mm. of the music you used to hear on the radio back then. Yeah, interesting. On the next track, four, is a Tim Horner, the drummer's composition, Little Bird. This one fades in softly with chiming little piano figures and bass with a little studio effect trickery that kind of makes it sound like distant steel drums coming out of a dream. Uh, things get going with a unison bass and piano line into a melody that builds up from repeated figures and slowly evolves. Seems to be a 32-measure length melody. Cunliffe works off from that on an easy-flowing solo that's got some cool restarting lines in it. Uh, Horner has some interesting fills and feel changes going on that keep catching your ear underneath. And Cunliffe reaches a climax of some super speedy and smooth lines before Vind has a softly rhythmic solo with some nice high register lines. Horner gets to solo through some playful Latin rhythmic chords from piano and bass, and then Cunliffe gets some more soft melodic piano that builds in intensity. But they transition it into that little opening rhythmic riff from the beginning, taking it higher, more chimey on the piano, and then a bit of that effect from the beginning to take it out. Track five is the title track, Border Widow's Lament, and it's a Bill Cunliffe composition. It's a rubato and rolling piano intro from Cunliffe over soft cymbal rolls that set up Vin for a bowed bass melody, and he gives it a singing and folk quality. A Cunliffe takes over with a tasty and sparse melody exposition and works it into more rhythmic improvisation. Vind returns with an improvised bowed solo and some interesting pitches in there and a final rapid bowing section. Uh, some more chiming melody from Cunliffe, and then they work it into rhythmic groove with really soft piano chords and snappy soft bass. It eases away with subtle drumming from Horner underneath. Track six, another Vind composition. Looking back, a rubato piano intro to this ballad. Vind joins in, giving it soft waltzing flow with a bass pulse. The melody starts with a minor mood, but turns brighter in spots, working into a section of chiming, descending piano chords, and pretty high trickles. Cunliffe continues on with a delicate solo, nice sense of space and dynamics here, and Vin takes a 16-measure solo, working softly articulated melody lines, and 
Cunliffe returns then working into the chiming descending figures and a final section of rising figures to end it. It's a very pretty tune. Track seven, another Vin composition, standing by the window waving goodbye. Uh, it's got a cool 16 measure intro with ringing bass interval ideas from Vin, piano fills and chords from Cunliffe and light cymbals tracing out the beat from Horner. Vin takes the melody and it really rings out on the bass. Cunliffe comes in with chords around his lines, and then Vin gets a more rhythmic snap in his lines going as Cunliffe takes over for a solo. The intensity builds with Horner's drums and bass push, and Cunliffe works up to some really percussive chords before bringing it back down. Uh, really soft for Vin to get a solo uh, that works into some bluesy ideas and keeps a rhythmic push at the same time. Back to Cunliffe for the melody this time, and he works up to a ringing climax before softening and slowing with a little vamp to an unexpected final note. Listen for that. Hmm. Track eight, another Horner composition, Reflections. This one gets a rubato solo piano intro, and the bass and drums join in subtly, bringing it into a slow, steady tempo with a nice swelling kind of cymbal feel from Horner. Cunliffe takes the melody, which has phrases that lift and fall repeatedly. It becomes familiar in your mind very soon. He continues on with another great subtle solo, sensitive dynamics, and a lot of interesting rhythmic variety in his ideas. Finn gets a solo too. Good melodic direction there, and more piano melody from Cunliffe and some unexpected fun rhythmic ideas building before a soft ending. I'll end with the final Cunliffe composition, Marching Season. This starts with a solo piano part joined by haunting and ringing bass from Vind. It's a hypnotic feel of alternating chords uh, that return to where they started. Cunliffe works chiming ideas and phrases, and it flows over very light drum decoration from Horner. After about two minutes, Cunliffe becomes more rhythmic and percussive, and Horner turns up the intensity on the drums. Then it calms a bit with spreading rising piano lines into more soft rhythmic and ringing figures and some final rising piano lines. And that's it. Uh, this is a piano trio music uh, recording with a lot of intimate interplay. The original compositions are fresh sounding and flow seamlessly into improvisations. The overall atmosphere is very subdued, showing off Cunliffe's subtle touch and very smooth phrasing in his lines. Horner's the ideal match of a drummer for him, really, with really soft textures and fills, and he adds just the right intensity at the points where things need to expand. And Vin sounds great as usual, with great bass pulses, uh, adding a lot to the rhythmic movement and melodic solos with his rich full tone. And I really thought this was a subtle and uh, deep recording. I like to hear these three musicians together again. Okay, now you called this um, subdued, and yeah, I it it is but there was it's subdued with a sense of well-being to it i just mm. kind of felt that there was something really good feeling about this and it's it's kind of funny that we're talking about this after the monpo which kind of kind of puts you in that sort of stratosphere and now we're here in this um kind of really um you know good feeling recording i think yeah. um it's particularly the piano playing it was really heartfelt i felt i kind of chose that word the playing was really s steady sort of it, it felt really secure to me like i really uh, felt like i was in good hands or Someone yeah. was leading me the right way or something like that. I really enjoyed that. Uh, the harmony in this is pretty straightforward, uh, falling between jazz and instrumental popular music somewhere. I mean, it's jazz. The rhythm is all jazz. 
It's a pleasant and engaging listen with uh, quite a few surprising key changes sprinkled throughout the solo sections. That was one of the uh, pleasures for me mm. was hearing the solo going and then suddenly the key would just kind of drop to something else or arise so unexpectedly. And I'm like, whoa, this is a constant surprise and pleasure for me. Uh, it's not challenging really, you know, to the ear. So it's going to be very appealing. I don't mean that enough. It's complex enough, but it's not like going to put anyone off. That's what I mean to say. And the album came across as having a sense of uh, well-being, like I said, and I think it gives the listener that sense of well-being, too. So I would recommend that. Yeah, I hope this uh, recording gets some listeners, and that's what we're here for. So here, uh, a really awesome pianist with a real gentle touch, and as you say, it's heartfelt Indeed. music. All right, recording two, we're going to go to the trumpet, and, well, we're going to go sort of into uh, a new generation of a trumpeter from his famous father, and that's going to be Wallace Roney Jr. with his quartet. A new recording came out March 20th called Gangway. It's on his own self-release label here. And, well, his father is, of course, the great Wallace Roney, uh, kind of a protege of Miles Davis, and uh, not that he didn't have his own voice, you know, a lot of good recordings, but unfortunately, uh, passed away of coronavirus complications at the age of 59 in 2020. Mm. And, well, his mother is uh, the late Jerry Allen, pianist-composer. So he comes from uh, jazz genes, you could say. Uh, but he's made his own yeah. name in the jazz world, uh, playing with uh, Chick Corea, Jack DeJohnette, Buster Williams, uh, many others as well. And uh, recently also Emmett Cohen, Camille Thurman. And well, we heard him with Steve Torres, Generations, in oh. episode 82, Bon Appetit. And I was really impressed by his uh, intelligent solos. I thought they were well thought out, all having nice melodic direction. So when I saw that he's got his uh, first album out as a leader, I wanted to hear it. And it's got an interesting one. And he says Gangway was inspired by the Herbie Hancock composition Maiden Voyage. And so Gangway uh, is a pathway a to a free and flowing world. And there's lots of free and flowing ideas in this recording. So we've got Wallace Roney Jr. on trumpet, Oscar Williams on piano, Tom DiCarlo on bass, and Daryl Green on drums. We've got a mix of original compositions and a couple Wayne Shorter tunes in here. Uh, another cover of a jazz great tune as well. So let's jump in with the title track, Gangway from Wallace Rooney Jr. It has a slow, steady, kind of processional beat to it. Interestingly, for this tune, DiCarlo's bass and Rooney's trumpet take the melody together, which is made of uh, measure-long phrases that modulate through four chords, or actually modes, before returning to the starting point. Uh, Williams adds chords and little fills, and Green keeps the beat steady with good snare work, giving it that processional-type feel. Uh, Roni adds some trills before spinning out at the end of the 16-bar melody section into a solo. He's relaxed and composed, and his phrases flow smoothly through these modal changes. DiCarlo keeps the rhythmic snap of the melody ostinato on bass, but mixes up the pitches. And Roni takes a four-measure break. Williams fills in with some piano. Uh, and then he continues on with a few uh, more hmm. spaces, uh, building some more reaching, harmonically extending lines and speedier phrases. He fits in some of the melody phrases and then works up to two climaxes of lines, working it to the upper register 
holding a long note for the last one. And they ended up quietly with just the bass taking the melody phrases in green decorating with light clicky ideas. I like the kind of unhurried feel of discovery in this tune. You use the word clicky a lot. What do you mean by that? It's like kind of like steady or something? or Rather than a full drum hit, but like a rim click. Or, oh, okay. So or on either on the snare or on the tom or some other percussion. Yeah, you know. That's good. I was looking for a word to describe that sound. I keep calling it like a rim shot. I don't really know what to, yeah. say, what to say about it. All right. I got it. All right. Track two is uh, SS Golden Mean. It's a Wayne Shorter tune. Uh, Ronnie starts it out solo with a two-measure melody snippet, and Williams joins on a repeat, and then bass and drums are in it, and they keep that going. It's got a similar unhurried kind of beat as Gangway. Uh, Roni comes in and out with the phrase and gets into improvised ideas. He takes breaks for Williams to fill in the gaps with, seeming to explore different directions on each new solo foray. DiCarlo has some really deep ringing rhythmic bass and green expansive fills underneath. Uh, Roni brings back the melody snippet and they work it into a final upward gliss of the horn to end it. Track three, Bobby Hutcherson, the great vibes players, a uh, nice ballad tune called Bouquet. This one's got a cool three rising and ringing bass note ending with a piano chord kind of intro that marks out that 3-4 rhythm and set the hypnotic mood for the tune. Ronnie blows the lyrical melody with sensitivity and a quivering vibrato at the end of longer notes, and he has a real glowing tone. Uh, he works into a spacious solo, getting into the upper register with some long-held notes, before getting more speedy and exploring around the chord changes. And he kind of uh, makes a tense, warbly half-valve climax before the ending, and then hands it over to Williams. He builds some cool tensions with percussive chords on the piano and dissonances mixed with flowing phrases. Aroni returns with some soaring lines, mixing up his articulation into a final high cry and a soft ending from the rhythm section. Track four, Wallace Rooney Jr., original many stories another unhurried groove here there's an eight bar intro setting the mood williams is on electric piano for this one and green has a soft funky beat with nice snare note the delayed first beat of every other measure giving it a unique kind of hesitated feel a nice lyrical melody from roni that flows smoothly over the contrasting snappy bass of DiCarlo below to 24 measure AAB construction and the B section has anticipation in rising lines and answering phrases. Williams is up first for a soft electric piano solo, building little phrase ideas into each other and getting into more rhythmic play, letting the magical Rhodes sound ring out. Roni gets a solo next. This one has good linear energy, connecting melodic ideas. Uh, he still leaves nice gaps between phrases, he has some false fingering fun on the way, and ties it back into the melody, working two runs through this time to finish up uh, with nice funky drum work from Green over the final B section. Track 5, another original from Roni, uh, Nostalgia. Shifting gears into a more hard bop style here, this one has got some tricky polyrhythmic stuff going on. Uh, Roni takes the melody of rising long notes and phrases into falling lines. The cymbals mark out a fast 8-beat feel over a triplet figure bass line, and the melody notes anticipate the downbeat, so it almost makes you feel like you're missing an eighth note, uh, giving it a forward push. Mm. But then it changes up to a halftime feel where the bass 
switches to half notes and the last three measures of the of that eight measure phrase so well if you count it in four even though it has that eight beat feel at the beginning you'll get a 32 measure aaba form with the b section is the same but it's a modulated version of the a so it sort of goes up and then it comes back. Williams is off after that uh, melody construction with a piano solo, darting explorative lines under Green's dancing cymbals. The piano sounds a bit recessed and echoey in the mix here, I thought. Roni has an agile solo with speedy lines, but some cool interval ideas and modulated figures. Uh, some kind of Woody Shaw influence in there as well, maybe. It's a pretty intense solo, and he works it right up to the restart of the melody. However, here, I wondered, uh, when he restarts the melody, there's something a little bit different about the sound quality from the solo. So I wondered if this was like a edit or repunch uh, in for the mm, melody. Interesting, yeah just caught my attention. They get a slowdown on the last phrase, ending and a few improvised ideas from Roni to end it. I caught that recessed quality of the piano too. Yeah. yeah. It was kind of... You know, when you're a trumpeter and you're the only uh, real melody instrument, uh, you don't have a sax mm -hmm. player to sort of trade things off, uh, it is going <laughs> to tire your chops a lot going, you know, from melody to solo and then back uh, to the melody. So right. um, it's, uh, it's a heavy load to carry. Then we've got track six, another Wayne Shorter tune, Plaza Real. It's a busy and funky drumming here from Green, and DiCarlo and Williams work some tight syncopated bass and piano for the intro. Rooney comes in with the uplifting melody, the shining tone. Williams gets a piano solo first. He has snappy ideas around DiCarlo's throbbing bass pulse. Ronnie follows with a snappy and nicely phrased ideas and confident high register reaches in his solo. He makes good melodies through uh, the unusual jumps of Shorter's chords in this composition. And then it comes back to another melody line. The rhythm section keeps the funky tight groove going to take it out. Track 7, Wallace Rowling Jr.'s original Phantom Zone, and yeah, it is Phantom Zone. Whoa, spacey, phasey <laughs> roads and synthy sounds open this one up. DiCarlo has uh, an aggressive bass rhythm going. Roni has a harmon mute in here as synthy lines attack. Changes up to a swinging bass walk and Green gets busy on the drums as more Space Invaders sounds come in. Uh, Roni brings some melody phrases back into running lines that Williams syncs up with. Things simmer down a bit for Williams to get some roads play with skittering lines over to Carlo's bass uh, throbbing and Green's dancing cymbals. And Roni joins back in for some meandering muted lines with some cool harmonic twists and the rhythm section takes it to a fade out. Shift gears for the final tune, hmm. Critics Delight. This is uh, original from Buck Clayton and Harry Edison. All the way back to uh, 1958 recording, Harry Edison swings Buck Clayton. And these two count Basie's trumpeters. So we're going back to uh, an early area of jazz, which will help set us up for the next recording we're going to talk about anyway. But uh, yeah, mm. some old time swing to finish it up. And they keep it very much like the original, starting with a loping four bar intro. And Roni surprises here, overdubbing a second harmony part to recreate the original two-trumpet version, both parts muted. The original also had uh, Eddie Costa on vibes. Uh, so I, I was hearing that in my mind because <laughs> I have this record somewhere. 
Uh, Williams takes the contrasting B section of the melody on piano himself, and then he solos first on piano, a nice snap in his swinging lines. Uh, Ronnie starts out with tasty bluesy licks, and makes a swinging melodic solo, uh, showing his respect for the tradition and older styles of uh, jazz. They take it through the melody again, uh, this time giving Green a drum solo on the B section, and finishing up with some final phrase repeats to a happy ending. And that's it. So I thought it's a nice initial solo outing for Roni uh, without a sax partner to share melodic duties with. He's doing all of the heavy melodic lifting here on his own. Uh, the recording covers a lot of stylistic ground. I like the arc of the program. It starts with these medium kind of settled grooves. We got a ballad and then moves into more aggressive rhythmic numbers. It finishes up with some time travel to this uh, older style. On some numbers, the soloing is more free-flowing. Roni coming in and out and exchanging with Williams. I enjoy his thoughtful solo sense of space and direction. And he usually arrives at a real destination with the storyline in his solos as a sign of maturity. Very nice in a young player. The rhythm section is tight. Uh, Green has a lot of variety of grooves and active cymbals. DiCarlo's bass is aggressive and snappy. Williams has a variety of accompaniment approaches and good solos on this album as well. So let's see where Roni decides to uh, take his music next. Yeah, I thought as a trumpeter, he had a really unique tone. It was, he, he plays does, out yeah. like really strongly. Mm. And it kind of put me in mind because we had listened to, you know, we were listening to all this classical and jazz all week. So of the, the voices on the Rachmaninoff recording, because the Russian kind of choirs just sing these really right. loud, bright tones. And I felt like, well, <laughs> obviously without the Russian element, he had that similar kind of loud and bright tone. Mm. And he also had a really uh, great recording uh, on this. I thought the drums laid down some pretty complex rhythms for the rest of the band to play over. Yeah, good So grooves. you couldn't really get like a gliding kind of groove out of him because he's, he's often sort of doing a lot of uh, different things that didn't allow that to happen. Um, I thought um, the trumpet had a really soulful feel to the playing too. Yeah, the compositions were a bit of a departure from what we usually hear too. And I think a lot of it comes from the drumming. I just want, he was he was unique as well. So he the drummer really caught my hmm. attention on this uh, recording because I felt like he was kind of like, had a lot of like sort of stuttering beats and then the trumpet would play like really smoothly right. over that. I thought it was a really interesting contrast. Yeah, interesting album. Yeah. The trumpet tone was something that really drew me in as well. It, it was a sort of unique tone, really strong. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm glad he's uh, composing, and I really liked the uh, nostalgia piece. Uh, that was uh, a lot of stuff going on there rhythmically to figure out. So, yeah, hopefully, you know, he gets uh, another recording as a leader out soon with more original music, as well as uh, what he's doing with all these other bigger players now. So, yeah, hope to hear more from Wallace Roney yeah. Jr., like you, I'd I'd like to hear him say with a sax player, you know, yeah. just so just to, for the contrast, because uh, he has a, this really strong tone. I bet the sax would be a little softer, and it would sound really, really good. Anyway, check out his playing on Generations, the Steve Touré album. It was really nice on there, which was the yeah, idea of like older and younger uh, jazz generations together. It was a great recording. All right, we're going to end things up with another favorite of the podcast, and that's Indeed. drummer Snowde Kirk with his new recording, Top Dog. This just came out March 24th on Stunt Records. And we first heard Snowde Kirk back in episode eight, Piazzolla yeah. times two and a European jazz review. <laughs> that was the title of it. Um, and this oh my was, God. Yeah. 
What were we thinking? What were we thinking? <laughs> this was this previous recording going up from 2021. And I got to tell you, I really like all of his recordings. Uh, maybe my favorite yeah, me too. is uh, Blues Modernism from 2012. Right. That just has this really cool sheen of compositions on it. But also a uh, beat from 2018 uh, with Tobias Wickland is a really great one too. Yeah, so we pulled out a lot of great musicians from those records. Yeah, a lot of as great well. musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, Jan Harbeck on um, those recordings mm -hmm. as well, and we did his uh, wow. recording a, a few episodes ago. And I want to mention too that uh, Neon Jazz, the podcast we also recommend, they've got an interview Joe Domino with Snowy Cook from about three years ago. Uh, so that's worth uh, checking out as well. So Snowy Cook's a Norwegian drummer who came to Denmark at age 13, and he's been active on the Danish scene. And, well, what you really get with Snowy Kirk is great swing music, a lot of older-style jazz rhythms, but done in a new, fresh way. And he's also a composer, as his release drummer-composer, Snowy Kirk, another release that he did, uh, emphasize that side of his talent. And we heard him last time with the American saxophonist Stephen Riley, who's got that real airy, fat tenor sound. You know, think Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins, players from uh, eras past. And so he's teamed up here again. Now, let's see. I'm going to get through these names. <laughs> We're going to butcher some pronunciation as usual. Oh, boy. So on this recording, we've got uh, on bass, Anders Crow Feldstedt. You would say he was also okay. on the going up recording. Uh, Stony Kirk on drums and compositions, of course, the leader here. A new element in uh, Kirk's recordings. The first recording I think he's done with a, a guitarist, uh, which mm. adds a subtle element to this nice swing. Mads Kobe Olison on piano, Magnus Hjort, also on the going up recording. On tenor, as I mentioned, Stephen Riley, and another saxophonist on tenor, and also listed on alto, Michael. Bleicher here. So we've got two saxes, sometimes together, sometimes on other tracks. And all the compositions are by Snowy Kirk. And so let's start out with the first track, Working the Night Shift. And we're going to start out with the blues, the 12-bar blues. And uh, Hjort gets uh, once around to start it out with the bluesy piano lines and trills. Uh, check out Kirk's subdivided cymbals and rim hits. Uh, you can hear Olsen's Rhythm guitar strumming out the chords. It's that very subtle, you know, lightly amplified old style uh, swing guitar there. Uh, next time around, both saxes are in on a lazy lined melody with nicely harmonized notes there. And Hjort fills in the gaps with bluesy piano fills. Once more around the melody, Bleicher solos, breathy and cool, matching the lazy bluesy mood, getting two rounds before they take it out with another round of the melody. I just want to mention that uh, that first track kind of reminded me of that Fats Domino song, Blueberry Hill, a little bit, <laughs> a little in the bit, way yeah. it felt, the way it moved, yeah. It's a cool one to start. Track two is the title track, Top Dog, and it's a happy swinging number. Uh, the melody is a 32 measure AABA form with cute piano descending hits into bass lines carrying the rest of the melody. The B section has bouncy piano chords. Uh, Fjellstedt is up for a solo first. He has great bouncy and nice uh, melody lines in that solo. Hjorth keeps the cute piano figures marking things out, and Kirk has really light drum accents. And Riley set out on the melody, but he's up next for a hard swinging solo as Kirk gets things really swinging on the drums. Hjorth falls on piano, 
with some fun upper register playful rhythmic lines in his solo, and once more around the melody with fun bass lines to close it out. Track three on Late Nights, and we're back to the blues, a very slow minor 12-bar blues here. The four-measure rhythm section intro of alternating chords sets the mood. Uh, this kind of reminds me of that uh, blues modernism recording, some of the uh, compositions mm -hmm. on there. Uh, Riley comes in with the sparse melody, half tone and half air. <laughs> it's uh, You wonder if the notes are going to make it out sometimes. It's a little bit of the... Uh... Jan Harbeck kind of uh, approach. I think Story Kirk must like that sound because he's got another so. yeah. like sax that makes that sound again. It's interesting. Uh, the bass on this tune really rings large, but you'll have to turn it up really loud to hear Kirk's delicate brushwork underneath. It's almost like he's hiding in there. Hjorth fills the phrase graps with bluesy piano. It's pretty sparse, but I don't hear uh, any of Olison's guitar on this one, so I think he's sitting it out. Uh, they take it around the melody once more. Riley gets some flutters going into his solo, and he blows some cool, tricky, fast figures, and his airy playing is super soft. A final high bluesy lick leads back into a final round of the melody, and a little breathy sax cadenza before the final chord. Track four, Bring Me Home. Both saxes on this happy gospely beat tune. Uh, there's a four-bar intro getting the bass chug and Kirk's beat going. Uh, the saxes take the 16-measure melody in unison and go around twice. Blecker gets a solo, and then Riley takes uh, two rounds on the, on the pattern. Uh, they're on the same stylistic and tone page. They head back to the melody together with a few final tags and a solo sax line to end it. Track five is Showtime. It's a real fast swinger here to show off Kirk's tight drums. There's an eight-bar intro with great chugging bass from Felstead. Riley takes the melody that has fun, repeated, speedy rising phrases. The melody's in A-A-B-A form, with each section being 16 measures long. Uh, Riley gets a speedy swinging solo with great melodic licks, and Kirk mixes things up with rim clicks and cool fills into a piano solo from Kjort. You can really hear the rhythm guitar in this tune chugging along. Uh, then Kirk gets a 16-measure solo. You don't hear Snow Day Kirk take solos very often, but it's really tight and has some exciting snare work. And Riley comes back on the B section, uh, soloing, and then takes a melody on the A section into some final phrase repeats to end it uh, with a solo sax line and some final drum hits. Track six is Meditations in Blue. And, wow, a bossa tune here. Uh, no saxes. Right from the intro, Olison's guitar is really important on this tune for that bossa feel on the chords, unique rhythm, and Kirk has light and tight hi-hat here. Hjorth takes the airy melody with a nice light touch. There's a repeating main 16-bar section and an eight-measure bridge, and then the first section again. Uh, after that, Hjorth continues on with another bridge section of chiming chords and a final melody strain section with a classy rubato piano ending. Kind of cool to hear a uh, bossa beat. I don't think I've heard that from Kirk yet. Track seven, Swing Point. Uh, and swing tune, it is indeed. And Riley's back coming right in on the bouncing 32-bar AABA melody. Uh, he continues on with a swinging solo. Olsen's guitar adds to the bounce a lot on this tune as well. And Hjort follows with a snappy piano solo. Riley's back with another fun run through the melody with a little harmonic surprise ending but the whole thing is over in two and a half minutes uh, so it's a short one <laughs> track eight easy roller 
a medium swing beat on this one yeah easy rolling it is indeed the rhythm section takes it around the 32 measure aaba form uh once with no melody just fills from hjort on piano and then uh Blacher fills in uh with the melody the next time around with soft sassy phrasing hjort really surprises with a roll up on the keys and trills building into the b section you're not expecting that and they make a big break into the sax solo and he starts it reserved, giving time to build up with bluesy licks. Nice accented hits from Kirk behind him. Hjorth gets a solo next, starting with some repeated bluesy lines and nicely articulated sparse licks. He rumbles and trills it back into the B section for sax to return with more bluesy wails into the final A melody section and a cool bass line ending. Track 9 is Yesteryear. A little solo piano intro uh, for this pretty ballad. This is Bleicher on sax here. It's a 32 measure AABA melody, and he plays it with great phrasing and softly seductive tone. No guitar on this one that I can hear, but soft, subtle brushwork from Kirk. Bleicher continues on with a wonderfully relaxed solo and another start of the melody, but that goes instead to a coda of solo piano to finish up with some bowed bass on the last note. That's a really lovely tune. We're going to finish up track 10, Boogie Rider. And we end up where we started with a blues. It's really bouncy swing, and the guitar really adds to that feel again. The rhythm section goes around twice with Hjort stretching out, or sketching out rather, the chords and fills. The third time around, they take some stop time on the first four bars, and then the next time, Riley's in for some breathy and bluesy soloing. Uh, he drops out for a round, and the rhythm section goes once more around by themselves. And then Riley joins back in for final two rounds, uh, fitting phrases between the piano figures. And that's it. And the big problem with this recording is it's too short. It's too short. <laughs> Only 38 <Yeah>. minutes, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, leaving you it. wanting more <laughs> swing. But it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of variety to Kirk's subtle swing beats. And even though this is, you know, an older style of music, it doesn't sound dated. It's like swing has just been discovered. Riley and Bleicher have the really perfect tone and approach for this music. Uh, Riley's a bit more breathy, uh, but I enjoyed Bleicher a lot on the Yesteryear Ballad. Fun and varied compositions from Kirk, bouncy and moody blues, upbeat, happy swinging melodies, a really great ballad, and even a bossa on uh, this recording. This goes happily next to all of my other Snowday Kirk recordings on my yeah, show. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so when you say it's too short, it means that we wanted more, not too short that, oh, it's they, they didn't do enough. Yeah. We would yeah. have liked to hear more, though, because it was so sure. good. Yeah, there's nothing not to like here. It comes across as old-timey, except that an excellent modern sound, and uh, the traditional rhythms and forms are so appealing and familiar that they just feel good, like the, the instant yeah. you hear them. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the faster tracks on it kind of made me think of the Hot Club of France, Stefan Grappelli and Django Reinhardt, because they had that quick strumming mm. guitar sound yeah, that, that we're used to from it, them. Yeah, yeah and, th and those are just such sunny, cheerful pieces, and I was getting that from this too. And that made me like it a lot. It made me smile. Yeah, I, I wrote here, my only problem with this is that I wish it were longer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was also saying, like, the later tracks got shorter. Like, uh, I thought they could have been prolonged with more solos or longer solos. I don't know. But it's a minor complaint about a very appealing album. Yeah, check out Snowy Kirk's music if you haven't heard it uh, yet. It's really 
make you feel good swing music on all his recordings. Indeed. And there's a few recording or videos, I should say, on YouTube of him with Riley, and they're really exciting performances. So, and mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't heard, uh, we uh, mentioned uh, Jan Harbeck. Uh, look up his recordings. Right. Um, you can find a really good recording on YouTube, a studio of Harbeck and Tobias Wickland and Snorri Kirk. Uh, when is Snorri Kirk? Uh, yeah, they Quintet. recorded, they were all on the same albums like yeah. back in the 2015s yeah. or something or around there. Cool to watch with uh, Wickland's early got this early huge, huge beard and his uh, <laughs> uh, plunger mute <laughs> work. Uh, it's really visually uh, interesting to watch that. So. And that's it for uh, episode 109. As always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And uh, let's see, next week, I think we're going to go uh, big brass, aren't we? We're, you're going brass. I'm going with uh, brassy um, orchestral works, let's say, for the mm. most part. And then we, we're finally going to put that um, high Baroque trumpet album, Altissima, on the oh, uh, cool. on on this one because I, I put that up on uh, our Facebook site so we'll right. hear it next week cool yeah that'll be good I'm going to have uh, all trombone music and we've got the uh, new Michael mm -hmm. Deese recording and we really liked his uh, last outing but this yeah, one's going like to be yeah we the last um, one a lot this is going to be uh, music of Greg Hill and uh, also Nick Finzer who we heard once before on the podcast and we're going to give you an advanced preview next week so you, if you want to find out what that recording is all about our episode will come out a few days before that's released on Outside in Music and another Outside in Music artist female vocalist and trombone player so we'll be all bones in the jazz next week so that should be fun yeah. I can never get enough trombone it's going to be a lot of exciting jazz there so Stick around for that one. I'll have the playlist up shortly after this episode is published. So if you want to find out what those recordings are, except for the Finzer one, you'll have to wait a few days after the episode is published to hear that one. Or well, you can come uh, to our houses and listen to it yeah, this week. Because we got it already. <laughs> if you happen to be in Japan, let us know. Yeah. All right. I hope this uh, music uh, has you feeling uh, holy for Holy Week, at least in the classical category. Get your swing beats bouncing for the rest of the time. Anyway, we'll uh, see you again next week for episode 110. So until then, keep listening and we'll see you next time. Gerald Albright, Priya Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist. That's something came from Baltimore. And be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, and Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, 
you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.